There we go. Last week we were talking about Hebrews 13, 17. But before we mention that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for another Sunday to gather together to open up the Scriptures and to look into your Word. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to explore the glories of our mutual salvation that you so graciously provided in Jesus Christ. And we pray that today uh, we would again learn and grow in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, last week we discussed... Welcome back, Carla. <laughs> last week we discussed uh, this verse about obeying leaders. We didn't get to the cross-references, but uh, I spent some time in Acts chapter 20 discussing... Paul's understanding of leadership, and that we spent most of the time talking about that. So it says, Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give account. As I said last week, the presumption is that in this particular situation, they did have good leaders. The leaders, from everything we can see in Hebrews, weren't the cause of the problems. They were trying to bring people in the right direction. So, that being the case, certainly you'd want to listen to them because they're doing what God called them to do. Uh, and then it says, let them do this with joy and not grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So, uh, we could summarize it this way, to grieve godly leaders would harm the body of Christ. And uh, there's enough grief being in any kind of ministry just because, I don't know why that is. <laughs> but I can tell you the truth, there's grief. And I think probably because there's grief in anything else you try to do too, right? Uh, whatever, that's just kind of the nature of the living in a fallen world. But if it's so, uh, such a good thing when God raises up godly leaders that are teaching the truth and are leading the church in the right direction, that when he does do so, those persons should not be given grief needlessly. All right? And what do I mean by needless grief? Well, things that really are not the real issues that are important. And sometimes we're expecting things that aren't reasonable or... There's just a lot of ways that grief can be brought into the situation. Um, let's look, well, let's start with some cross references. I'm going to start with Larry because you're closest to the mic, and I won't go this way. Larry, if you could look up Ezekiel 33:7 and 9. Ezekiel 33:7 and 9. Um, Karen. Oh, I was going to give you Acts 20, but we studied those last week. Well, just look this one up, Karen. Acts 20, 28. And then Carla, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. Keith, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12. And Stephan, 1 Peter 5, 2 and 3. And Robert will start the mic around with Larry when he's ready. Ezekiel 33, 7 and 9. Yes, Ezekiel 33, 7 and 9. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. Verse 9 says, but if you warn the wicked to run from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Okay, so that means the watchman was responsible to warn people about the truth, right? And if the watchman doesn't, then he's responsible. So that means uh, leadership will always have to give account for having warned people about the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word. So that's a very solemn responsibility. Okay? Um, then the next passage was uh, Acts 20 and verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. 
Okay? Notice it said the shepherd, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And that's, I think we talked about this last week, that's very, very important to realize that the church actually consists of those who are bought with the blood. They aren't just people from a given geographical area or people that have common interests, uh, like a community gathering, but they're, they're said to be bought with the blood. So that's a very important definition of the church. Okay, and then we have 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Okay. A, a steward is somebody... Well, let, why, why, why don't I just ask the question? What, who is a steward? What is a steward? Servant. Okay. An overseer of someone else's property and belongings. Absolutely. An overseer of someone else's property and belongings. And so when leaders are called stewards, that means they're looking after the church of God, but the church belongs to God, not to man. So the leadership of a church doesn't own the church. It's the Lord's. Uh, it's the Lord's flock. Uh, could you wait until we read these verses, then I'll have Robert bring uh, the mic. Okay, next verse here is 1 Thessalonians 5.12. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Okay, so again, if you've got people that are diligently serving... Um, then they should be uh, held in high regard. 1 Peter 5, 2 and 3. Therefore I exhort you, oh wait, oops, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sorry gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those who... <coughs> those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples for the flock. Okay. <clears throat> it says not lording over. Robert, uh, there's a lady over here, uh, Kathy, who would like to ask something. But not lording it over. So shepherding means to be looking out after the welfare. Okay, the number one job of a shepherd is to make sure the, che- the sheep are fed and protected from wolves. Right? Fed, watered, protected from wolves. <laughs> That's uh, especially for uh, John. Okay, Kathy? Um, how does one respond to uh, an overseer that oversteps its bounds? Okay. Uh, if One of the things that we are maintaining, and I talked about this last week, is the authority of Scripture and the priesthood of every believer. And we're publishing a CIC, art, two articles, one that I wrote and one that Keith wrote, that will be going out on Thursday and both of them are about prophecy in the church, all right? And we're claiming that, and we're following a long line from the Reformation of, of the same teaching, is that when it says you may all prophesy one by one and the others judge, we're defining that not as the static utterances, as some people say, or new revelations, but bringing out implications and, and applications that follow from Scripture, edification, exhortation, and comfort. And this is something that's given to the church, not just to leaders. So what this means then is if a leader falsely prophesies, because prophecy is always to be judged, right? So uh, Luther claimed that if the Pope falsely prophesies by saying something that's not biblical, that any person in the church can tell him he's false and he should be quiet. Amen. All right? That's what Luther claimed. Now, you, that made him real popular with the Catholic Church. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that comes from, it all comes from uh, uh, implications from 1 Corinthians 14. So we have an article that's coming out to explain that. So what that means is that if an elite over, uh, a leadership oversteps their bounds, and the, the, the worst overstepping of bounds that you could do would be to falsely teach. In other words, because when you falsely teach, you're false, falsely prophesying. The article that Keith wrote shows from many scriptures that teaching and prophecy are linked together in the Bible and that people therefore would think that whatever I'm teaching is actually from God when it really isn't. All right? 
And so when I proclaim as the Word of the Lord what isn't the Word of the Lord, that binds you. Because the Word of the Lord is binding on all Christians. And so when you're bound to a false word, like what happened with the Jesus said the Pharisees were doing, uh, tying up heavy burdens and laying on men's backs, that is a, 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 an oppressive thing. So if that's what ha- happens, then there needs to be action taken, and anybody in the flock can correct that. Now, it, it, as in the case of Timothy, there were elders who had run astray. In, in, in the first and second Timothy, it discusses that, and they need to be corrected. Okay, Pete. I think it gets back to the concept of steward, because the owner has the authority, and the steward just executes what the owner has in his authority. So when the concept of shepherd the flock and protect them from wolves and watch out for the wolves is message-centric. The wolf comes in with a false message. Right. So that I stand against the false message because I'm a steward. It's like Luther was talking about why can't, you know, people are saying, why can't you compromise? And he, he said, it's not my truth to compromise. I was just given this truth from God. So therefore... The shepherd's job is to keep the message pure and continue to say, this is what your owner says. Here's the owner's words. And when he tries to substitute his own words for the owner's, he becomes a wolf. Okay. Good point. Absolutely. So notice in the passage that Stephen read, it said uh, not lording it over the flock. Another abuse that can happen, uh, that leadership can do, is to try to speak beyond... Trying to make their words authoritative in areas that aren't even determined by the Bible. Okay, in other words, there are a whole there's a whole lot of about life in it that we have liberty in, and in areas of Christian liberty, the opinion of the leader is of no more importance than the opinion of anybody else. Do you, do you see what I mean? In other words, we have liberty to have padded chairs or steel ones. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, that's I've had a battle over that. I, I I've claimed we have claimed at Twin City Fellowship since the early '80s when when the big thing back then was uh, Christian schools, not so much homeschooling, that parents are responsible for their children, for their training them up in the Lord, and that they have liberty as to how they do that. In other words, if they want to do it themselves or they want to uh, send, pay the tuition to have their kids go to a Christian school, or if they feel uh, out of necessity that they teach them the religious things in the home and they go to the public schools, that that's their liberty. And that we were not going to, as leaders, command under the authority of God what school your kids go to. And we maintain that now for 25 years. Now there's people that are just screaming mad at me because I won't tell everybody who's not homeschooling that they're sinning and rebelling against God. Now, there's a reason I won't do that. Because I'm, I've seen how damaging it is when leadership sets themselves up to dictate everything that people do. That's lording it over. And we, we lived through the shepherding movement in the 70s. And it harmed a lot of people. And, and the leaders were going to tell you whether you could buy a car, well, whether you could go to college, whether you could have a job, and everything, can you go on vacation? They tell you what to do because the idea was you, you can't make your own decisions. Now, that's lording it over to flock. And why don't I do that? Because I fear God. Amen. Because I fear God. And I cannot um, command you what God hasn't commanded. And so... I would say the responsibility to accurately proclaim the truth of the Scripture is a very solemn one, and we must do it. And what God is bound is bound, or what God has loosed is loosed. That's what, that's what binding and loosing means, forbidding or permitting. But where God has allowed liberty, say, let's just look at something like days of worship. All right? I can't, I can't uh, just say because I am a pastor or I'm some sort of religious leader, I'm going to dictate to you that you, if you don't worship during the time frame that I say, that you're in rebellion against God. We don't have the liberty to do that. I think I don't recall what verse Keith read a few moments ago, but the phrase was in there, in the Lord. 
And if you are teaching in the Lord, you're going to line up with what Scripture says. Right. And that, that's, you find that throughout Scripture. Everything in the Lord, in the Lord, in the Lord is going to be sound doctrine. And if you're not teaching sound doctrine, that would point out that you're yeah. a wolf in sheep's clothing. Right. Absolutely. So, now what do you do about some? Let's talk about, again, this matter of Christian liberty and, and church leadership. It's, a, it's just to do business on the face of the earth, decisions have to get made. All right? And so, in order that the decisions in areas that are Christian liberty, like buying and selling buildings and so on, uh, um, have to be made, we have a, a corporation with officers that are responsible for that. All right? And you have some sort of due process set up in a constitution and bylaws that you have to follow. And I think that's important. A civil government is important. So one aspect of a church is the civil government that determines these things. And in, in that regard, we just pray for wisdom and make decisions. And we're not thinking when we do that that God's trying to give us revelations. In other words, we're not saying, okay, God, should we buy this building or that one? Give us a revelation. Um, because I used to think that way, but I don't believe that way now. And part of the reason is that we need to be free to admit we made mistakes. Okay, and so if everything's God told me to do this and God told me to do that and I have to go here and I have to go there, then, then every single part of life has this authority of God hanging over it where what we need to admit is this is a matter of liberty and we make decisions and sometimes we make dumb ones. Uh, Keith, what is your saying on that? It's not a sin to be stupid. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Keith says it's not a sin to be stupid. Sometimes you buy a car and it turns out to be a lemon. <laughs> All right? And in the way, uh, at one time in my life, when I thought God was giving us revelations about everything, then I'd always think that's what, it, it was sort of a huge burden. I, 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 I used to believe this until I really carefully studied the scripture on it. If I bought a car and it turned out to be a bad investment, I thought that God had tried to give me a revelation about that car and I just didn't hear him. So that, and, and that drives people into this contemplative prayer and uh, mysticism stuff because they got to get better at hearing these voices so you don't end up buying a bad car. And it's not a sin to be stupid. <laughs> so I bought a car, turned out to be a bad one. That's what happens in this world. And I guarantee you in the millennium that won't happen. I, I think that in light of like our church move and looking at it at the church move, we know that the leaders that we have, they have a responsibility to before God that the gospel is preached and that we're a gospel-centric message. Mm-hmm. And as such, God holds you responsibility, you know, responsible, uh, you and all the elders, that that happens. Now, if we go to this church and the seats are pink instead of blue or they are uncomfortable or something, it's not that God's failed. You guys might have made a bad decision that this chair doesn't work as well as another chair, but that's not the message and that's not, God's not holding you accountable. We're not going to go to hell or we didn't miss God because something happened. Right. We'll have afflictions in that building the same way we had afflictions <laughs> in this building and we'll go forward and preach the gospel. I think you can get afflictions just about anywhere. And, right, absolutely. You see, in, in what, this other way of looking at life, and it's called the third will of God, all right? It's very, very damaging and very, very, you're in fear yeah. your whole life that yeah. you're missing God somehow. Absolutely. And there are some good books out on that, uh, and I wrote one article on it, but I'm saying there, there is such a thing as real Christian liberty. And some people tell me, well, because you believe in the sovereignty of God, you can't believe in freedom and liberty. That's just false. In fact, it gives you more, the sovereignty of God gives you a, a ground for liberty in a much greater way than if you had this idea that there's this third will that you've got to get by revelation, and then if you don't do it, God's plan isn't going to work. Okay? Uh, let me tell you why. Because, in my view, there's providence. Okay? And that God is working all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And so I don't think me making a wrong decision is going to throw a monkey wrench in God's providence. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, absolutely. And, and let's think about this building because it's the biggest thing we're doing right now. We're not, going, we're not selling this one and buying that one because somebody got a revelation from God that that's what we should do. 
we're do, we, we, we put this up for sale for the simple reality we couldn't afford to be here. We were broke. We had a budget of 140000 a year in this great big building. Now, that's a pretty small budget. All right? And there was no way that if anything happened with the building, it would be impossible to pay to fix it. We could not stay here with the budget we had and, this, and 75 people coming to church. We could not stay here. So how do you find out God's will? You get hit alongside of the head, I guess. It's just like, okay. God led us to sell it. God led us to sell it out of desperation. We just didn't see there was any other thing we could do besides sell it. And then we made a decision to sell it in December of 2003. And then it didn't sell. But people started coming. Right? And then we got more people, more people. And the budget went up and the budget went up. And pretty soon we didn't need to sell it. And so we said, well, if it doesn't sell by August 2006, we'll probably just take it off the market. And a month later, somebody came and bought it. And then we didn't have any parking. And then we didn't have any parking, yeah. So these things are, this is so, it's like your house. It's like your life. It's like your decision making. And, and, and every one of us that they, we can't have some dictated revelation from God about take a right, take a left, buy this house, get this job, do this. We don't have that. We have liberty. The Bible tells us to work with our hands to provide for the pressing needs. It doesn't say you have to be a bus driver. And it doesn't say you have to be a mechanic. And it doesn't say you have to go get a master's MBA. Those are all within the realm of liberty. You just make your decisions. And God's providentially working through your decision. And you're not going to be uh, somehow dropped off the side of the earth because you did it wrong. Yes. Okay, on some of those things that you was talking about, you know, it's kind of like you have to assume certain things. For example, like walking in the spirits that you are, you know, uh, I guess, you know, in the spirit. But when you run across verses like, as it seems best to you, or mm-hmm. being led by the spirit, is that what you're talking about in terms okay, of... Okay, being led you know, by the spirit? Yeah, or, you know, those other verses in there that says, it seems best to you, I've seen in some of the... Uh, some places in the Bible where it says seems best to you. Yeah, so. well, absolutely, because we make our decisions as we see. Now, let me talk about being led by the Spirit. I don't know how we got into this, but and Keith and then Ryan. Uh, the word led in Romans 8, where it says those who are led by the Spirit are the children of God, the word led means to be carried along. Uh, and I wrote an article called Carried by the Comforter. Uh, Ryan thought of the title. I would never come up with anything that clever. And, and so being led by the Spirit doesn't mean the Spirit told me to go here, the Spirit told me to go there, I'm getting revelations. It means that God is indwelling every believer and by His sovereign power and His providential plan is carrying us along from the, moment, from the cradle to the grave, as the song says. And God is carrying those who are His redeemed Toward glory. He's carrying us toward the conformity to the image of Christ. And the decisions we make, even those decisions in our Christian liberty, are part of God's providential plan. So I decided to buy a house in St. Louis Park. Why? Because I like St. Louis Park. And uh, we decided to buy a church in St. Louis Park. <laughs> Why? Because I don't want to spend a lot of gas. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> no, we're trying to stay central. Is why we did that. Yes. But you know, part of it is it, it, the fact that we believe that God is leading us and is carrying us along. It gives us liberty to make choices without fear because I know that God's carrying me Amen. while I make choices. I've made dumb choices. Non-sinful, just dumb, regarding business and lots, lots of money. And that was God carrying me along. His will wasn't thwarted and he wasn't worried. And it was God acting in my dumb decisions and being dumb wasn't a sin. In the same way, on the other side, I looked at Carla, I liked her, and I decided I wanted to marry her. So I did. And God no, married don't, us. No, don't say anything about dumb decisions, Carla. <laughs> So <laughs> this could be in trouble here. <laughs> and my, but my decision to marry Carla was God itself, because what God has joined together, let no man separate. So I made decisions, and God is yeah. leading me, and I continue to make decisions about 
what we do for work, where we go. I spend the summers up at a cabin, and that's God leading me. Now, providence also includes afflictions. Right. And my stupidity and the things that I do have consequences, but they're not consequences outside of God's will. It's him leading me along, and I can go forward in freedom and hope. Absolutely. You know, that passage, I'm glad you mentioned the one about whom God joined together. I taught a, a seminar over in St. Paul about this, and I, uh, I use that as a proof text for this. See, when we, we were talking about contemplative prayer, and before I went, uh, Brian Flynn and I went and did a seminar about this, and before we went, we met with a pastor who was bringing us in to say, now I want you to address something, because our people are afraid they're going to lose something if they listen to you. And I said, well, what are they afraid of losing? Their guidance. In other words, the reason for going to the Richard Foster and the, um, you know, these techniques to hear God's voice was because they feel like they had to get guidance to know what decisions to make. And so there's a theological problem underlying that. Now, see, if, if you actually believe that worldview, that there's this third will that you have to get by revelation, and it concerns every single detail of life, you cannot claim you believe Christian liberty whatsoever. Because there is no free decision about anything. And it's amazing to me that some of the people that believe in free will the most are ones that believe that doctrine. Well, you don't have any free will. God wants to dictate everything. Now, my theology, I'm free to make all kinds, the whole realm that's not dictated in the Bible, I'm free to make decisions. And I actually literally make those decisions and God's providentially working through them and they're not going to keep me from glory. They just may make me unhappy now. <laughs> and, and one proof text was whom, was whom God joined together. If this third will of God was true, that you have to get a revelation, then how can Jesus say about marriage in general, he didn't specify which marriage, whom God joined together. Obviously, Jesus was saying, that people, however they decided to get married, or even if they live where there's arranged marriages in, in cultures, that God joined those people together providentially. Because they decided who to get married, but once they decided, God joined them together. Does that make sense? It doesn't say the ones that heard from God and then got married or joined together by God. And, it, cause not, and again, that false doctrine hurts people. I, I've heard people come and say, uh, very sincerely, they, they say, I think I married the wrong man. I must not have been listening to God. And, yeah, you know, and I said, oh no, you did not marry the wrong man. Well, how can you say that? You, you should see him. <laughs> see guys, you know what your wives are saying when you, no. <laughs> just, just kidding, just kidding. And, 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 but it says, whom God joined together. So you can't say that. So that's proof to me that there is such a thing as Christian liberty. And there is such a thing that God's providentially working. Yes, right. Here's where I think it hurts the flock the most. Is if you believe in this third will of God and believe that you have to go to this third will to always find guidance. This is where you see the enemy here. The church is calling is to pursue Christ and pursue our unending relationship with Him. And if you are pursuing this guidance, you're never doing that. You're completely immersed in this uh, mode of always trying to find this will that isn't even there. Therefore, you are never in the Word. You are never in prayer. You are never truly going toward, to God in the way He wants to. And you, you look at being led by the Spirit. And I, you know, what is it? What does the Spirit do? The Spirit comes to glorify Jesus, Amen. and that's where true discipleship comes. Is when we get into the Word, we get into true prayer, we get into true fellowship. We are growing in these things, and we are seeing our Lord more and more and more in our unending relationship with Him. There is no room for that, and that's the enemy's happy when he yeah. takes our eyes away from that. And then people get tempted into almost like the astrology. Well, they're going to find out. Yeah. Why do people go to the tarot cards? Well, they want to know who to date or who to marry or what job to get. And so then we uh, are tempted. If you could pass that back to Paul. A verse in Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast in the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. And that's kind of the same. You know, you you make the, you know, like even if you're, you know, throwing the dice to figure out what to do like they did with... um, 
with choosing Matthias to replace Judas. You know, they they cast lots for him and decided on that, but it says that every decision is from the Lord. Okay. So, so then that's a good that's a good reference, Paul. How God uses that. You so know. he uses it. Okay, so okay, back let's get back into Hebrews here. Nice little <laughs> nice little excursus. They, they they call that in in literature an excursus. A buddy trail is a simpler term for it. Now, we're talking about Hebrews 17, 13, 17, where it says, um, Obey your leaders, submit to them, they watch over your souls as those that give account. Let them do it with joy and not grief. Now, watch over in the Greek, I was, uh, William Lane which says that that's always used in some sort of an eschatological sense of, in light of future judgment. So it says here, um, they keep watch for eternal life as those who intend to give an account would be how he interprets this. The clause offers a commendation of the leaders as men with divinely given pastoral authority and responsibility. Um, and he also references Acts 20 where a synonym is used. But, but the translation watch for conveys the intention better than watch over. Neither in secular Greek nor in the Septuagint does the verb express an official activity. In the New Testament, the term always connotes eschatological vigilance. The leaders function as watchmen for the community, knowing that in the eschatological judgment, they tend to give an account to God. So this is in light, and this is a very important concept. I think that we redefine leadership in the church just as much as so many other things are redefined. We tend to judge leaders based on the sort of things we're just talking about. Are they builder, better builders? Do they make? Are they better CEOs? Do they cause the the organization to flourish financially? Do they do they run the thing in a way that they're going to be found um, written up in Christianity Today or some, something like that? You know, uh, the, the a big builder of a big organization that can function well like a CEO. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about eschatological vigilance, meaning. That knowing that when at the end I'm going to be responsible to give an account to God for the souls of these people. Were they told about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Were they taught the pure word of God? Were they looked after and cared for and watched and protected from wolves? Were they um, given what they needed to grow in the grace and knowledge of God and walk in the Spirit, as Ryan was saying. Yes. Well, and I think that the concept of the congregation looking to the leader has been really perverted. I don't go to you as a pastor expecting you to have the greatest wisdom to fix my business, to fix my family, to fix my son, to fix the stuff. You're not the fix-it man with all these remarkable revelations from God that, of the, the silver bullet for all my problems. It's not putting you in the position you're supposed to be in I have afflictions, numerous afflictions of all kinds of problems, and we believe as a church that the solutions to those problems are eschatological and that God is having all these problems leading us to glory because he's bringing us to glory. And your job as a leader is to show me that context and encourage my faith in the one who does love me in spite of my afflictions because he died for me and covered my sins and give me comfort that my sins are forgiven and I don't need to fear that this is judgment, but to go forward in God and go forward in life making the best decisions I know how because I know that I have an eschatological yeah. peace and comfort that's coming. Yes. You know, another proof of this thing that we're talking about would be Paul's own example. Remember where he said to the Thessalonians, I, I desired to come to you, but Satan thwarted me? So what did he do? He didn't go. He bound Satan, right? No, he didn't go. <laughs> yeah, he didn't blame anybody. He just didn't go. So Paul wanted to decide to go to Thessalonica. He wasn't able to. For We don't know how Satan thwarted him. That detail isn't given in Thessalonians. But he just didn't go. And so we're free to make different decisions or where we're going to preach or how we're going to go forward. And... Uh, how do, you, how do you know what God's will is? Well, providentially, how things work out as you go through life. 
Yes. Well, yeah. I think it's simple. It's just like a mother. It doesn't take a rocket scientist for her to love her little baby. God says to love him and and bear witness to the hope that's within you. And uh, tell this world where your heart lieth and brag about God. says, let your boast. Boast about this. If you go, I went to my 45-year high school reunion last night. Everybody's got a little agenda. Everybody's got something that they brag about. Every And it's really kind of a sad world because I looked it over and people go through the stages, you know, the 20-year reunion, 25, everybody trying to be somebody. Then we get to the 45th, there's millionaires, there's this or that, they got grandkids, they're all talking about retirement, all this kind of stuff. But where does the Lord fit in after retirement? How about falling in love with Him and brag about, let Him who boasts, boast about the Lord, where your heart lies, it doesn't take a rock. Wherever you are, people are bragging about their agenda, talking, because God says they're lovers of self, they know how to talk about themselves. So I went last night, I didn't know, I said, Lord, I, if I have opportunity, like Isaiah said, send me, Lord, if I have opportunity. I don't know, it's very difficult, I'm scared, who can I talk to? You have to open the door. But I am available to brag about you, to say something about you on your behalf. I'm available. But you have to help me, you have to open the door. Well, I don't get a chance to talk to the ladies that much, I'm out on the streets. But God gave me three little ladies that had horrible stories, horrible lives, and be able to encourage them in Jesus Christ. And I couldn't thank God enough. It's nothing complicated. And then keep your nose out of other people's business like the apostles are asking, what are they going to do? What are they going to do? Jesus said, mind your own business. I got a job. What are you going to do? So it's simple. You wake up in the morning. I love the Lord. I'm available. I would like to brag about you. I would like to do your will today at work, wherever it is. And it's a joy. Like a guy goes fishing. He loves it. He loves golfing. He loves all this stuff. Well, you're in love with the Lord. Lord, I love you. I can't wait to brag about you. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm definitely going to brag about the Lord before I brag about my golf. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> okay, let's go to another verse. We're going to do another verse. We, we, I got to get to another verse. Hebrews, yeah, well, actually we did 17 last week. We're still on last week's. Hebrews 13, 18. Now, again, this reveals something. Now, here it goes to us, so the writer of Hebrews is including himself here, okay? Again, when we started Hebrews, we pointed out that there had been a lot of questions about who wrote Hebrews, but we don't know for sure. It's somebody inspired by the Holy Spirit, now we know. Pray for us, for we are sure, for we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. Or another way of translating it is, since we strive to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. So, um, the conscience is an idea that is discussed in Hebrews. It's discussed in Hebrews 9.14, where it says that our conscience are cleansed from dead works to serve our living God. And so the leaders are asking for prayer. The writer of Hebrews is asking for prayer that they would uh, continue to conduct themselves in an honorable way. And this is very, very important. And it's a good thing to ask for prayer because, like you were saying, Dan, we don't want to boast in ourselves. And it's not good to start claiming about your own future obedience to God that you believe you're going to do. Because it's not being very circumspect. It says in Corinthians, let him who stands, let him take heed lest he fall. And um, Peter found out. Remember what Peter said? Peter said, though everybody else deny you, I won't. Remember at the Last Supper? I'm the one who won't deny you, Lord. I don't know about these weaklings here, these other disciples. (laughs) And Peter... uh, did deny the Lord, and he was in to his own chagrin and shock. And so we are asking for prayer as leaders, knowing that we could deny the Lord. And we could offend people. And we could give needless offense to the Gospel. And so pray for us, says the writer here, and I'm echoing this, that we might live honorably by God's grace. Yes. I do think that reading this, you can just see uh, how much the author of Hebrews really understood how fellowship was an important part of the Christian life. And asking others to pray for us is a means of of grace, both prayer and fellowship. And it's 
I, I think you, you look at the author of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews was very learned. He knew his Bible. He knew his Old Testament. He proclaimed some of the most glorious things in the scriptures here in Hebrews. But he was humbled. He was humbled by them, knowing that he was being moved along by the Spirit, and he needed grace to continue. Therefore, he asks for prayer. And I think that should all of us should echo that sentiment, that we all need prayer to carry on, to keep our conscience, and to conduct ourselves uh, honorably in all things. Because, God forbid, we say, uh, I will never stumble, Lord. Because no. we, we see how that results. I know. I mentioned that when I was re, uh, interviewed on the radio, uh, and this guy, was, we were talking about religious oaths, and, this, and the interviewer was asking me why I was against this one oath in particular that was stated by 30,000 people in a stadium, I will do this, I will do that. And, and I, my answer was, this is boasting. Okay? Because we're, we, if we're going to say, I will always obey the Lord... <laughs> you know, it, it, in a sense, it's almost a setup for failure because the more you trust yourself, the less likely you are to actually overcome. It's not a setup for failure. You're failing by saying. Okay, okay. So, so, uh, you know, like you were saying, boast in the Lord. A better way to say it is, I I believe in my own weakness and my own ability to sin, but I believe more in God's grace to preserve me. Yeah, that the Holy Spirit will carry me along and pray that God pray for me because I need grace. Um, and so this is a very good uh, example here. Um, William Lane suggests that there was obviously tension in this community that, of the Hebrews to which this epistle was written, and by taking this sort of an attitude and asking for prayer and identifying with the leaders, the author of Hebrews is wanting to. Um, Make sure there's no resentment and that the tensions would be relaxed, especially if they would pray for one another and pray for their leaders. And we're told to pray for our secular leaders, so how much more should we pray for our spiritual leaders? Amen. Okay? And, it's a lot of, and so that's, that's what it says here. And then, then we might have a good conscience. And the idea that conscience is, um, let me see what Lane says. He says this. It is not engaged in moral decision-making, but in remembering. Um, in, in Hebrews, the term conscience is deeply religious overtones. The conscience is directed toward God and embraces the whole person in his relationship to God. And then he goes on, The defiled conscience is an obstacle to the worship of God and calls for a decisive purgation, Hebrews 9.14, 10.22. In the light of this background, the assurance of a clear conscience is all the more remarkable. In the dynamic context of community relationships, the assertion of a clear conscience is a particular form of protection against slander and an affirmation of credibility. It signifies we have a clear conscience in a specific matter of our conduct towards you. So, in the ma- if you look at it that way, in the matter of your conduct towards you, I would, if I want to have a clear conscience, which I do, then week by week by week, I have to be thinking about the well-being of the flock. And that has to be job one. Every sermon that's prepared has to be done so prayerfully in light of the well-being of the flock. And for our eschatological well-being at the final judgment. And sometimes it's hard. i got to say the last time I preached, when was that? Was it last week? Yeah. Yeah, I just preached. I was on vacation and I preached the day I got back. I had a very tough passage. It wasn't easy for me to preach this in Thessalonians about retribution. It's not that I love just piling on the divine retribution and hell and wrath and, you know, uh, but I feel a sacred obligation before God to preach what He gives us. And that's a tough work. But there's always grace in the Gospel. And so... Uh, um, the responsibility is that the whole counsel of God is given to the flock in order that they may be preserved in their own spiritual well-being and be preserved in the wolves. And so, um, I, I've been criticized by people because of the verse, some of the things I preach. And, 
I had had somebody call one time. I was just so mad at me because I preached through Romans nine. Well, you can't. You can't. How can you believe that? How can you believe that? I said, well, I'm supposed to teach through Romans nine. It's part of the Bible. I'm sorry you don't like it. But so I said to the person who was so angry about Romans nine. I said, all right. If if you were the teacher and Romans nine was the text, how would you teach it? I don't know. I don't know what I would say. I said, okay, well then have some empathy. I just told you what it said. I said, however, I think you're going to like Romans 10. Why don't you come back for that class? Because she was mad because Romans 9 said uh, uh, God chooses some and others. But then Romans 10 says, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So I, I said, just get the whole counsel of God you'll have a good balanced theology. Let's just keep going through the Bible. So pray for us that we may have a good conscience and conduct ourselves honorably in all things. Now, let's head this way with the mic this time. Ryan, if you want to look up Ephesians 6, 19 and 20, Lois, Colossians 4, 3, uh, Pat, 2 Thessalonians 3, 1, and Noel, 1 Peter 3, 16. 1 Peter 3.16, okay? Ephesians 6.19 and 20. And pray on my behalf that the utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Question for you, Ryan. You're preaching through Ephesians now. Why would Paul, of all people, need to pray for boldness in the gospel? He's <laughs> he, yeah, he's in chains. <laughs> uh, so he was paying a high price. Paul was paying a high price for the gospel. And from the record, Paul was very bold in the gospel. But you're sitting in jail for it, an ambassador in chains. You need prayer that the intimidation doesn't get to you because you could just stay out of trouble by not preaching the gospel. Okay? And I'm going to show you as we go through these passages how many times... This theme comes up. And, and the Bible, when it talks about praying about gospel-centric things, it's interesting what it says. It tells us to pray for the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers, right? Because the harvest is great and the laborers are few. That's an important prayer. And many times it says to pray for boldness or people ask to pray for boldness. So two things I think would be very central in our gospel-centered prayers, praying that God sends people out and pray for boldness. Because there's two things that are their temptation. One is to not go out because the gospel is not popular. And the other one is to not be bold because the gospel offends people. Interesting. Okay, let's, let's get these verses read. Uh, Lois, here. Colossians 4.3 Withal, praying also for us that God would open unto us the door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in bonds. So then again in, in, in prison, he's praying for an, the opening of a door of utterance for the gospel. So he prayed for boldness and he prayed for opportunities. Wow. Okay, let's, let's follow this along here. Now, 2 Thessalonians 3.1. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you. Pray for us that the word of the Lord would spread. I think we're seeing a theme here, are we not? <laughs> yeah, and and in, in the context, I'll pray as we pray for our uh, the leaders in, in 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 the church. That what we just read certainly should be a theme of our prayer. Pray that the leaders would have boldness in the gospel. And that we would have opportunity to proclaim the gospel and and, and along these lines. Because this is a a theme. Okay, 1 Peter 3.16. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Okay. There it talks about keeping a good conscience. So, I think the issue here then would be that if there's going to be an issue, it should be over the gospel, not over our own bad behavior. Right? Amen. Okay? 
May the gospel be the issue, not some offense, needless offense I'm giving. But even then, if you come and proclaim the gospel with a good conscience, meaning that you're acting as a Christian and you're say, a visible Christian without any problems that are visible that way, it doesn't mean that they get saved because they see you exhibiting these traits. It means that they, right there, it means they have shame. It took away, yeah. makes it angry. Yeah, that, that's a good point. You know, they'll become Christians because I look like a Christian. Yeah. I become Christians because the gospel is preached and God comes and lets me believe it. The, the gospel is the most important thing. Now, and the behavior has to do with not creating an offense. Now, yeah, there are some people think that if I'm a really, really good person, everybody's going to want to be a Christian. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't expect everybody's going to want to be like me. Uh, God forbid that. Yes. I was going to say, uh, sometimes you fight to be in chains, so to speak, but sometimes the Lord will open up an opportunity to help someone else that no, where no one else could be able to help them. That's true, and that's part of the providence that we were talking about earlier. God gets us to the right place at the right time, and what he allows us to go through, he does use. Even even difficulties and sorrows and times that you wish you'd never gone through and hardships and mistakes and all the different kind of things that go on. If we are walking in the Spirit, according to the terms of Romans 8, God will use all those things to further the Gospel and to bring us to glory. So this conscience... Um, why don't I have... Um, uh, Dean, do you want to look up that passage and read it for us? Hebrews 9.14. Do you want to give that to him? Hebrews 9.14. It talks about the conscience there. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge yourself, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Yeah, so the blood of Jesus Christ purges our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So the cleansing is an internal one. And in the context of Hebrews, they remember uh, the temptation was to go back to the temple services. And they had external blood. Okay, There were different things that were done with the blood of the animals, sacrificial animals. They were all external to something. Right? Yes whether the person or the mercy seat or the doorpost like on the, at the Passover. But the blood of Jesus, which was shed once for all, cleanses us from the inside out. Amen. He cleanses our conscience. He cleanses our inner person and makes us new creatures. Yeah, if we're in Christ, we're new creatures. And the old things have passed away and things, new things have come. All things have become new. Interesting uh, conversation I had with by the way, uh, uh, Nicole uh, is Boone is not here because she's got a job taking care of someone on the weekend. So uh, she tells I was talking, that's the person I was talking to because um, I got an, I wrote an article about theophastic ministry. Remember that? And I've been I still get calls from people around in fact all around the world who have had been damaged by that because of this recovered memory that goes on that they claim they don't do. There was a lady in Australia who lost her whole family because one of the family members went to this ministry and was convinced that she'd been abused by her father, but it never happened. But the false accusation destroyed the entire family before, the, before it was uncovered that it hadn't happened. I got a call from another person the other day who, whose da daughter was con became convinced that she had... She'd been molested by her father, and it never happened. I mean, she had never said that this happened, never had a memory that it happened, but she started going through this theophosic ministry, and all of a sudden she starts remembering things that didn't happen. And, and, and there have been lawsuits over this. There was one in Florida where there was a pastor who lost his job his, in his ministry, and it turned out to be a false accusation. Well, anyhow, there's Nicole. And do you want to um, bring the mic back there? Uh, um, Anyhow, Nicole had gone through some very serious damage from the same ministry, so she's always been willing to help other people. 
And so as I'd called her to see if she'd be willing to help this guy. But we, in the process, we had a little discussion about the past, about memories. And, and it's interesting, the reason these approaches to inner healing harm people is because they really have an unbiblical understanding of our relationship to our own past. Okay? Um, let's, uh, when it talks about the cleansing of the conscience by the blood of Jesus, we all have defiled consciences. Alright? Whether we were victimized by somebody else or we victimized someone, we, we've all sinned, we all defi- have defiled consciences. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us when we come to Him by faith. Cleanses our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And what's important is that we're a new creature in Christ and we do serve the living God by God's grace. Now, what's our relationship to all of these memories? Well, these approaches are saying that the cleansing of the blood is not sufficient. And they're saying that in order for you to be the person you should be, you need to identify memories and then do something about them. Okay? And so you go on this... <coughs> no, no, you gotta, you gotta go, you gotta identify your memories and if they say there may be something you forgot that, that you have to find out about. And they go into these things that are in a sense are promoting an altered state of consciousness because you're trying to get revelations. And in that state, whether it's a hypnotic state induced by therapy or some other version of it, people are vulnerable to hearing things that I believe are from Satan. And what happens, and I know of four or five cases that have been documented, is they start remembering things that are horrible, miserable, wicked things that never happen. Now, why would Satan give somebody this experience? To destroy families. Because once these false accusations come, it totally destroys and ravages families. And, um, and I've met, I met somebody in the 80s under another version of this that had lost his entire family and ended up in jail. He literally ended up in jail for something he never did because somebody had a, a, a recovered memory through therapy. Now, now that there have been some multi-million dollar lawsuits, people are shying away from this. Okay? Um, the fear of God didn't get them, but the fear of the lawyer did, finally. <laughs> now, what am I saying? The blood of Jesus cleanses us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let me give you assurance. Your sanctification is not dependent on your memory of your past sins. Your sanctification is not dependent on going back, dredging out the past, thinking about what happened to you, and trying to do something about it. Your sanctification is centered on the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the work of grace through the Holy Spirit. And when when Paul says forgetting what lies behind, he doesn't mean that he didn't know what happened. He just said what it was. But he says... He was focused on the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And dredging around what he did could hurt you. Uh, did you have something, Bill? Okay. Um, anyhow, but Bill, by the way, back here, has done a lot of research on some of these things himself. And if you need some research on uh, some of these things that people get into. I was just going to mention that uh, <clears throat> Neil T. Anderson is very much like that, too. Only it's not so mystic, but he wants you to remember every instance of every sin. Yes, and, and I was in a group that w- where we were doing this right, in the 70s, and i I got to say, personal experience showed me that it doesn't work. I should have known just from the Scripture. You know, how can I assure you? I just want you to be assured. Uh, you know, who's the accuser of the brethren? Satan. Satan. When does he accuse us? Day and night? (laughs) Okay, day and night. Who does he accuse us before? God. How is he overcome? By the blood of the Lamb. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Now, what what would be a nice trick for the accuser to pull? The, The blood's not enough. That didn't do it. You need something more, so you better go back into your past sins and start working on it. And what a, what a horrible accusation against the children of God. And whatever, I don't care how sinful anybody has been, if they're in Christ, they're a new creature. Um, 
Um, I'll finish with one story. Some of you are new, and I've told the story before, but some of you are new and haven't heard it. There was a guy that came here until he passed away by the name of Harold Snitzes. And Harold had been serving the Lord since 1930. And Harold was such a, him and Hazel were very, very godly. He had never owned a car in his entire life. Uh, just, uh, just an interesting fact. That's not what made him godly. I, it might, <laughs> it might help. <laughs> it might help. <laughs> but anyhow, uh, but he'd been always leading Bible studies and, and doing and just an exemplary Christian man. Lived to be 93. And it just so happened that three days before he died, he came to the prayer meeting that we were having on Wednesday night. And 93-year-old Harold, who'd been serving God since 1930 or something, he says this. I remember the last words I ever heard from Harold. I have failed God in many ways, but it's all under the blood. <laughs> and two days later, he went to be with the Lord. Now, isn't that a testimony of a truly godly person? It wasn't, he didn't say, oh, I did this, I did that, the other thing. He said, no, I failed God in many ways, but it's all under the blood. And then he was ushered into glory two days later. And so I, I told that story at his funeral. And... Um, I hope that uh, we can all have that testimony. It's all under the blood. So God bless you. We'll see you upstairs at 1030.